the bottleneck thing that you're talking about relative to me in my position in leadership can also just trickle down. So, you know, what I've noticed is that when I let go and empower the people on my leadership team, oftentimes they then become the bottleneck. So we just remove a layer, but create additional bottlenecks. And I think they suffer from some of the same thing. You know, it's an instinctive human thing. If I'm involved, I can guarantee it will be delivered in the way that I expect it to be delivered. But if I am not involved, everything can go south. And so I I do think that that is an illness of leadership. And so, you know, recognizing that and encouraging those people that are leading teams to see it sooner and to recognize um, the the opportunities uh, in removing themselves as bottlenecks sooner is probably one of the greatest mentoring challenges of my current career. Welcome to episode 158. Nancy Lyons has been an entrepreneur for 22 years. She's the founder and CEO of Clockwork, an experience design and technology consultancy. People First, as a business strategy, is the guiding principle that fuels the unique, award-winning culture at a company. Join our conversation as she shares with us how exponential growth happened the moment she stopped being the bottleneck of the business. She describes how she managed that setback of letting go, details the significant milestones as an effective leader in inspiring her teams to success, and provides valuable tips for entrepreneurs. By the way, Nancy's bottleneck score was 30%, the second lowest score. So if you want to evaluate your bottleneck score like she did, simply take the bottleneck index. It's free, it takes two minutes, and you'll get instant results. You'll find the link in the show notes. And now let's turn to our interview. Hi, NNC. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Right. So you've been the CEO of Clockwork for 22 years, if I am correct. A long time. I'm sure you've seen a lot of things. You know, many, many, many stuff must have happened during your during your journey. When we first met, you told me that you now feel crazy, and the word you use is crazy, not being involved in everything. While you used to feel crazy about being involved in everything before that. Mm-hmm. How crazy is that? <laughs> you know, are we never satisfied, us, the entrepreneurs? I think that's true, actually. I think there's something about starting your own business that makes you a bit of a control freak. Yeah. Um, you know, when it's mine, when my word is at stake, um, when I have relationships with clients, letting go is one of the tough lessons to learn. Obviously, it's taken me 20 years to learn it. But, <laughs> right? I mean, let's be honest. Uh, why, why are you saying that? Why, why did it take you 20 years? Well, I think, um, I, I do think that there's so much, of, there's so much of me that's sort of inextricably tied to the brand in my own mind. And so I feel like the promises we make are in part my promises. And as a result, you know, I think while I've always had a high level of trust for the people that I work with, I think it's really hard to take a back seat to the delivery aspects of the work. In fact, in other words, 
not make myself um, an integral part of everything we do. And um, for a long time, I think I fought my instinct relative to that. And so I do feel a little weird. And and I also think, it, you know, I, I want to believe it, it might be a, 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 a woman thing, too. I think women feel a lot of pressure to be able to point to what they produced in order to get validation for um, their contribution. And the higher up on the leadership chain you get, but also the more you let go and empower the people around you, the less you have to point to. And I think that that sort of instinctively is just counter to what I've learned in, in my career. And yet, the more I let go, the better we do. So, isn't it amazing? <laughs> this is that is crazy though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. It is. The more you let go, the better you do. Mm-hmm. So, hence, not being the bottleneck works. <laughs> That's, it, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. So obviously, you learn to deal with bottlenecks. So you just talk about one big one, which is you know that ability to let go. But what have been some of the other? you know, major bottlenecks you faced along the way and how did you manage to overcome them? Sure. I think, um, you know, it's interesting because the bottleneck thing that you're talking about relative to me in my position in leadership can also just trickle down. So, you know, what I've noticed is that when I let go and empower the people on my leadership team, oftentimes they then become the bottleneck. So we just remove a layer but create additional bottlenecks. And I think they suffer from some of the same things. You know, it's an instinctive human thing. If I'm involved, I can guarantee it will be delivered in the way that I expect it to be delivered. But if I am not involved, everything can go south. And so I do think that I do think that that is a, an illness of leadership. And so, you know, recognizing that and encouraging those people that are leading teams to see it sooner and to recognize um, the the opportunities uh, in removing themselves as bottlenecks sooner is probably one of the greatest mentoring challenges of uh, my current career. You know, I, I, I think, you know, letting go of it only to bestow that sort of burden on another person doesn't make any sense. You're not, in fact, removing the bottleneck. And so for me, that's uh, that's an ongoing challenge. So so you have to teach them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I don't think, you know, I've got some great people on my leadership team. And so I don't think it's so much teaching as believing, you know, like I have to teach, I have to encourage them to believe what we know about the systems we put in place to manage our process for delivery. Any, any other challenges you've faced that you can share or maybe examples Sure. I mean, over the years, scaling has always been an issue. And I think, um, you know, we try to make very data driven decisions, but that wasn't always the case. I think this also is an entrepreneurial challenge in that when an entrepreneur feels overwhelmed, um, we often make decisions based on our overwhelm versus actual data. So I think over the years, we've managed scaling in, in different ways. You know, we've certainly hired up because we feel busy, but I think externalizing that conversation. In other words, it's not about my impression of how busy these teams are. It's about our impression of the truth based on the data that has helped um, create more productive conversations and more strategic 
opportunities for scaling. In fact, we are, interestingly enough, we're doing more revenue than ever right now. 2023 was our best year ever. Mm. At almost half the staff we had at our largest size. So um, I think that is absolutely about data. It's also about sort of the emotional bodies and maturity of the workforce. In other words, um, you know, when people feel busy, that feeling impacts their emotions mm. and emotional decision making can often take over and that doesn't serve us. And so I think it's important to set um, expectations based on data around when we pull certain triggers um, and and share that so that that is a shared understanding throughout the organization so that there's no question about when are you, what does it actually look like when you are actually busy and what can you count on this organization to do to support you when all of these criteria are met. I think that's a big one for us because we've certainly made really bad decisions in the past about hiring. So what sort of data, if you can share, obviously? Sure. I mean, it's really about, it's about, are we hitting our targets? It's yeah. about capacity planning and realization for the teams. Um, it's about pipeline. So it's a combination of those things. What have we got coming? Where are we at in terms of these people hitting their targets and are in terms of hours and delivery? Um, and where are we at with, uh, um, revenue target? So it's an alignment of those three things. So you said, uh, this is the first year. Well, this is a big, big revenue year. This is the biggest, biggest revenue in, mm -hmm. uh, in the existence of Clockwork after mm -hmm. 22 years. Mm -hmm. So never, <laughs> never desperate. <laughs> I know. Right. Right. Yeah. And with less, with less people. So obviously it's a huge milestone. What other milestones? Can you identify along, along the, 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 your journey? No, of course, sure. 22 years. Yeah. Um, well, I think quite a few. I think it, I, I have certainly matured in my understanding of what's, uh, what's, a, what makes an effective leadership team. Yeah. Um, I would say that's a big milestone. We have a president and a COO right now. And, you know, I had to think long and hard about. Uh, what that looked like for us and what the expectations were of those roles and whether or not they were redundant and whether or not it made sense for me to continue to operate as a CEO with a president and a COO. But it's actually been great because where we're going now is in creating, um, you know, service offerings and SOPs across the whole organization so that we can scale more effectively, um, And what I believe is we are more mature now than we've ever been. And I can point to the fact that my succession plan is actually in operation. So that's been a big milestone for us. Um, the folks that, and that's not to say I'm going anywhere anytime soon. In fact, I've been able to, I mean, unless I drop dead, which, you know, hey, happens. Um, but I'm not planning. It's not in my camera. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, Um, it gives me the opportunity to manage up and out, to manage our profile, to continue to raise awareness, to continue to focus on our need to expand that brand awareness across the country and the globe. We serve clients in that capacity, but ensuring that we are known um, is, is, a, is a real challenge that I'm enjoying and it's different from anything I've ever done. So I do think putting my succession plan in motion and enabling them to run the day-to-day -day has been a huge milestone for me and for the organization. 
I think, um, really, uh, really developing a shared understanding of accountability throughout the organization. In other words, accountability is a, is a word that organizations banny about liberally. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that most people agree to what that means and what the expectations are of their individual roles. And when you and I talked the last time, I told you a little bit about our process with um, the entrepreneurial operating system, which yeah. I think is is a key driver for us having removed obstacles and bottlenecks. And um, and I do think that moving through that process um, also helped us to run more efficiently, but create that shared understanding of accountability and set expectations um, that are that that move through the entire organization around you know, what, what is the expectation of each individual contributor to this organization? What does it look like? What is the timing? And what happens if you don't deliver? Um, I think providing clarity around those things has been great too, because, you know, for a long time as an entrepreneur, what I felt, and I used to say this to people, and I may have mentioned this to you in our previous conversation is, you know, we rely a lot on org charts and org charts are, are a thing that we can't seem to get away from. And they're beautiful in that they're hierarchical and I'm always at the top on the, either the star on the Christmas tree. And isn't that great? And as long as we're doing well, I remain the star on the Christmas tree. But when we've hit, you know, businesses ebb and flow. And when we hit those ebbs, I always felt like that org chart turned upside down. And instead of me being a star on a Christmas tree, it was like a drill bearing into my scalp, my skull. That's the yeah. kind of pressure I felt like I was under. It never felt like the pressure was shared. And I do think that where we've gotten better in terms of sharing that, that sense of accountability is I no longer feel alone when we are in a, in a downturn or in a struggle. And, and nothing brought that forward more than the last few years in the context of the pandemic. And so it was clear. And, and I'm very grateful that we use that time. We use the slowness and the, and the uncertainty period in the pandemic to really address that particular issue and all of the peripheral issues around it to ensure that we aren't doing that anymore. And so I feel not only a great sense of relief, but a great sense of success because I do think that shifting that dynamic is, is what accounted for or what led to this, this great year we've had. How did you manage to do that at your level? For instance, I would I would imagine it would take uh, you know uh, it would require more communication from you. For example, so what did you change in your behavior? I pulled back. I mean, I I I did a ton. There was a ton of communicating in the process of EOS, and there was a ton of sort of restructuring and reestablishing and establishing roles on the leadership team, so that they knew they could. You know, I, I think we had some redundancies. I think that. Um, you know, this is certainly a conversation that I've had many, many times. If I just think something out loud, I can disrupt the entire organization. You know, mm-hmm. it's about really understanding those boundaries because like, you know, like I told you before, I have a really solid leadership team, including the president and the COO. But if I'm sitting in the middle of the room and I say something that's counter to them, well, then suddenly I can, I can throw everything they've been pushing for right out the window. I can be a disruptor. And, um, I think recognizing that and really understanding my boundaries, where I am essential, where I do not need to be, um, and letting go of control, letting them drive the day to day. 
and being explicit. You know, one of the meetings I have shortly after this one, this conversation is with a new person. And in the onboarding process, we like to communicate, listen, I'm not the buck stops here. That's Jenny. She's the president. She's the buck stops here. I am here to talk to you. I am happy to counsel, mentor, advise. You know, I want to continue to have that open door policy, mostly because I've been doing this so wrong, so long, so wrong. That's hilarious. Um, <laughs> so long that uh, there's not a mistake that any of my folks could make that I haven't made more often and probably better and bigger. So I'd like to be available to talk them through that stuff. But I'm not here to make that final decision. That is not my job. And so I do think communicating early and often around that is really important. Yeah, it, it reminds me when one of uh, my, my guests who told me that sometimes as a funder, one of the best moves you have is just to, uh, you know, move out of the room and let, and let your staff make all the decisions and have the conversations by themselves. Mm-hmm. That's, exactly, yeah. that's exactly what you're saying. I agree. And I think, um, and so I don't have to be in every meeting. I don't have to have every client relationship. And now what we're really creating, you know, some, some strategy around is instead of me coming in and owning the relationship, how can I enhance it? In other words, you know, one of, we have this year, we're following these core, uh, these strategic pillars. Our entire, uh, plan for the year is coming out of these three strate- strategic pillars, one of which includes, you know, sort of increasing touch points and and improving client experience. So everything comes down to how they feel, right? How do they feel working with us? So instead of me being the first, middle, and 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 regular contact throughout the um the experience with us, I'm I'm going to travel to meet you know our key clients and expand the relationship, like you know, show our gratitude. I'm not driving an initiative. I'm talking about, you know, what what else we have to offer, how we could show up, how we want to make them look good. And it's, you know, it's sort of a tour with those clients that's outside of sort of the standard operating um, ways of working with them. I understand how what you're about to the next call was uh, that good sense, pretty good. <laughs> Should remove, you remove the bottlenecks. Yes. Molly. Yes. Worked really hard to remove the bottlenecks and it's, it's working. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it is working. I know. <laughs> so what's next for you? Well, years in business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and let me speak to that too, because it sounds like, gosh, it's such a long time. Um, first of all, it flew by. Yeah. Um, second of all, you know, before, uh, before we started clock, we spun out another studio. So there's a whole other company that's operating too. We have other interests. Um, you know, we've got a, a real estate interest. Um, so, so the business partners are doing other things. But in addition to that, we have been through an acquisition before and, um, prior to starting clockwork and that experience was unpleasant. And so, um, while it sounds like, wow, you've been doing this a long time, um, I think as long as it's successful, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, my, my career is here, but I also know that the culture we built is unique. The way our, our delivery process and, and mechanisms for success are, are unique. Um, I mean, certainly we borrow from all sorts of things. We're an agile shop, you know, so I'm not saying we do everything miraculously and, as as little shiny 
stones that are different from everybody else, but um, we have our own way of working and ensuring that we're keeping our promises. And, um, you know, I think uh, uh, as long as we are growing and, and demonstrating that success, I think there's room for me to continue to guide the organization while continuing to focus on not being a bottleneck. But I also think there's all sorts of other things that I want to do. This year, I'm working on my next book. My last book was published in the middle of the pandemic. Unfortunately, we had no idea when writing it and submitting it for publication that when we launched it, there would be no book tour. The book launch party was on Zoom. Um, and so the next book is... In fact, I've got my first uh, meeting with my editor next week, so that's in progress. I want to raise the um, my profile on my speaking work because that is super helpful for the business. So I have personal slash professional goals that influence how the business shows up, how it's seen and 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 perceived, and that don't require me being in the office every single day. That don't require me being on delivery teams. So my immediate hope for the future is that I finish this book and it and it has some positive influence and that I'm able to uh, upgrade speaking um, because I find a lot of joy in speaking because, you know, my I, I, I want to be a motivational speaker when I grow up um, and because I think representation matters, right? Like, I think we have this idea in our heads of what a successful entrepreneur must look like and operate like, and it's either like a white guy in a t-shirt and flip-flop or... <laughs> That's a startup world. In the startup world, right. But, you know, I mean, look at Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, and, and or a, a, a billionaire white guy who's gotten so out of touch that they're like Mark Zuckerberg and they're telling the world, we're raising cattle so we can have the best beef ever, instead of talking about how you're changing the world for the better. So I think, you know, or we romanticize it, or it's it's a very beautiful moneyed, well-educated woman like Sheryl Sandberg. But the truth is entrepreneurs come and, and there's always this massive success associated with it. It's not, you know, I mean, I believe that small businesses and we know that small businesses are the biggest employers in the U.S. Certainly um, they have the biggest influence on workforce opportunity um, and they are the most dismissed, the most diminished in the global conversation about business. And so for me, I think there's a lot of opportunity, both as a, as a representative of what entrepreneurism could look like. You don't have to fit, you know, a lady mold. Let's be honest, I'm wearing flannel. And you can have good ideas and a solid work ethic and see success. And so, you know, I have a great desire to influence entrepreneurism and leadership in the in the business community and beyond. Um, so that's what's next for me. And that's with or without clockwork, honestly. You know, I, I have no immediate plans for anything relative to clockwork except to continue to grow and reward those people that are fueling that growth. I'm sure you're going to be an awesome uh, speaker. Uh, well, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time. I just need to invest more in it. Yeah. Um, so, so, and I, and I will, and I will. That's where, well, that's what all of the, that's what not being a bottleneck affords me is the ability to invest in the thing that I love the most. Why did you become an entrepreneur? God knows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a couple of answers to that question. One is I think there's a huge faction of the entrepreneurial population that are accidental entrepreneurs. You know, we started doing the work and suddenly, oh my gosh, we have a company. And I think that was a big part of uh, what happened with us. We, we, 
were early adopters of technology. It was before there were all these formal programs in colleges and universities. And, um, many, and many of my colleagues early on were self-taught, but we understood a landscape that was completely foreign to the business community. So we were able to do it and, and create, um, you know, businesses online before that was mainstream. So I think that that accidental aspect is a, is a significant piece of it. But I think for me, I continue to do it because I didn't see a place for myself in, in corporate America. I did not see myself reflected back at me in what women in business looked like. And I still struggle with that. You know, it was, it was largely male and the women that did exist there operated, um, in a way that made them less threatening to men and, um, well, appealing to men. You know, they operated under these sort of old school ways of thinking and working that just did not, did not work for me. I could, you know, I, let me tell you a little story. I was working in a restaurant once years ago. I used to be a food server when I was going through college. And I remember, uh, I was waiting for my, my, my friends to get off of their shift. I got off earlier and I was sitting in the little lounge area of this restaurant and bar. And I had a gentleman who happened to be a drag queen when he wasn't, when he wasn't, uh, do you love this? Has anybody else talked about drag queens on your podcast? Um, who happened to be a drag queen when he wasn't waiting tables. And he walked by me and he looked at me and he said, girl, are you wearing eyeliner and mascara? And I said, yes, I am. He said, don't ever do that again. And I, when a drag queen tells you makeup doesn't work for you, we should just take that advice, which I did, and never wear it again. So you see, it wasn't just me who understood that I didn't fit the mold that other women subscribed to. And mm -hmm. so um, I think that I became an entrepreneur to create a space for myself that was safe and gave me opportunity for to succeed. It's, it's funny you mentioned... Uh... You said you, you were an accidental entrepreneur. This is, this is something that I have heard before. I do believe there is no accident when you become an entrepreneur. It's like, I, I think it's a calling. It's like you have it or you don't have it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes a long time to get there. In my, in my case, it took me like 18 years before I decided to jump, mm -hmm. but it's like, it's like a virus. It is. I mean, I think once you realize you can do it. Well, yeah. here's the other thing that I think is, is really hard. You know, you asked me, what do you know now that you didn't know then or what's working or where have there been issues? I, I do think that your business becomes an experimental space, right? Like other people, I remember I gave a guest lecture at a, at a university in town that was, um, to an MBA class. And when I was walking to my car afterwards, several of the students were walking along with me and I said, gosh, maybe I should get my MBA. Maybe I need to go back to school and get my MBA. And they said, why? We're doing this to do what you're doing. Like we want. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? And it, it saved me a lot of money. That conversation saved me. <laughs> and yes, I did get my MBA on the run, um, you know, uh, while while operating a business. But that also means that I didn't fail with my grades. I failed with my actual business. Like I had years that were not great because I made, you know, decisions that didn't fly. Um, and that's a tough way to learn. And the, and that's why a lot of businesses fail. Um, so I've been. So now, so now I want to know what, what sort of decisions did you make? Or oh, uh, for a long time, we tried to be a SaaS company. 
And we tried to build a product and we didn't have, we had a great product, but we didn't have, I didn't have, uh, first of all, we didn't have outside funding, which I think is critical to get any sort of product off the ground. We were bootstrapped. And so our, our profitability was eaten by the team that worked on the continual evolution of that SaaS product. And ultimately what I determined is that building and bringing that product to market put us in a, a, a really interesting position of understanding not just how to, um, how to explore the needs of our enterprise clients relative to products in that space, but also how the back end customization aspect of those products work. So the leadership that we could bring to these decisions relative to third party applications was significant. So we could actually let that go and consult around this massive marketplace um, of commerce and, and content solutions that were already in existence that we couldn't possibly um, compete with. But for many years, we tried. And it was when it became necessary to consider it a consumer product versus a B2B product that it, that we kind of had to let it go. So that was a big one. You know, we, we lost several years and we weren't lacking in profitability the entire time. But one of the big lessons was when we, when we're just selling our wisdom, um, the margins are healthier and that's, you know, that's our reality. Okay. So now. Putting all your experience together, mm -hmm. reflecting on it, what is the one practical recommendation that you would give to other entrepreneurs? I think it's knowing when to say no. Ah. You know, I think it's a tough one. And, um, and it looks like a lot of things, right? Like for a long time, because we make software, I had a really hard time, you know, accepting that positioning meant narrowing our focus and continually narrowing our focus. But the more we've narrowed, the more successful we've become. So positioning is, is, is one lesson relative, you know, that, that shows up in the ability to say no, but also recognizing where we shouldn't be showing up, recognizing what, you know, what opportunities we shouldn't go after, recognizing what humans probably aren't going to make a great contribution to the organization, regardless of the pedigree they seem to show up with. So I, I think saying no. So it's a good one. I know it's, it's, I know it's very difficult for lots of people and I, and I, and I understand. It, you, you mentioned hiring two times now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm not feeling yes from that really bad experience. <laughs> well, I think hiring, I think our hiring strategy is, is fantastic. And one of my business partners actually is our chief people officer. And he, um, and actually I th believe he calls himself chief experience, which can be confusing because we usually think, ex we usually equate experience to design. And, um, and he's creating an experience not only for the people that we employ, but the clients that we work with. How do they feel interacting with the folks on our teams, the promises we make? Um, and I think, uh, we do peer based hiring. We've always done it that way. Um, and we, we really want people to show up as a reflection of our values. Um, which isn't to say they have to memorize them right out of the gate, but they have to sort of organically, naturally, um, reflect those values, which are curiosity, adaptability, desire, you know, to be fueled by challenge. Um, but honesty, 
you know, if I can't do something, it's imperative that I have the ability to say, I don't know, or that's not possible. Because unless we have those honest people showing up, so certainly we've been burned. We also for a long time believed we can't grow our own. We have to hire from the outside in order to get the expertise. But uh, there are times when that doesn't actually work, where people on the outside are looking to level up but they're not necessarily bringing in the experience that the title they come in with suggests they should have. So growing our own is not out of the question and has, we've been very successful at it. Nice to hear. Is there anything that you would like to add that is really important we forgot to talk about? I guess the only thing that I would add is it's okay to fail. You know, I've, I've referenced failure or mistakes often in this conversation. I feel successful. Um, but I don't, I, I think we talk a lot about failure, right? There's a lot of conversation about failure and how important it is to innovation, but failure in practice is much harder. And, um, and yet failure in practice is how you get better. And so I think, you know, just embracing failure, embracing discomfort is, uh, a, a critical aspect of success for entrepreneurs. Isn't, isn't uh, success a series of failure anyway? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the important thing is that you try. Great. Amazing. Thank you very much, Nancy. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. Mm-hmm. How can people contact you? Uh, well, I am, uh, you can find Clockwork at clockwork.com. You can find Tempo, our agile studio at madebytempo.com. You can find me at nancylyons.com. And of course, I'm all over the socials. Um, at nylons because my name, Nancy L- and lions, people see nylons, but now people don't even know what nylons are. So young people, they don't, it's funny. You stop it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole other conversation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but again, thank you very much, Nancy. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. I hope you found the insights and tips Nancy shared with us today helpful to tackle your own buttons. Don't forget to tune in next time for more inspiring stories and expert advice. Until then, subscribe to the podcast. That way you won't miss any future episodes. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.